My name's Charlie. I'm an alcoholic. And believe it or not, it's a pleasure to be here tonight. Uh, I have somewhat level of expertise in doing this. Um, I substituted for a gallbladder in Corpus Christi, Texas. I substituted for cancer, unfortunately, in Biloxi, Mississippi one time. And hell, I even substituted for a PMS in uh, Waycross, Georgia. <laughs> so I hope it's just a flat tire I'm substituting for tonight. It's pretty explicit in the big book why we do this. Uh, it says what we do, we share our experience, strength, and hope that others might recover from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. Uh, it says um, how we do that. We share what happened, what it used to be like, and what it's like now. But a lot of people mistake and miss why we do it. In uh, Bill, in recounting why he had the stories in the back of the big book, he says, we tell each in our own way, in our own language, exactly how we developed a relationship with God. And he didn't mince words there. And I'll try not to mince words with you tonight. Uh, I came in, um, I'd like to be able to revert back to some sort of theory of victimization on my part, that I was a victim, or in this age of psychobabble, that perhaps my inner child had acted up a lot of my life and had led me into drink, but... Uh, tell you the truth, uh, I was born into a well-adjusted family, a happy family. Um, my earliest memories were always of uh, wonderful things. I was born in Highland Park, Texas. For those that don't know, Highland Park's a community in downtown Dallas, one of those wall communities. Um, when I was little, uh, I thought that everybody had a someone that cleaned downstairs and someone that cleaned upstairs and someone that drove the car and someone that cooked the food. And I'll tell you, that's the way we lived, and I really enjoyed it. It was quite nice. <laughs> I took to those delicacies and expected them the rest of my life. I guess I was born selfish, self-centered, and um, manipulative. Uh, early on in my life, I discovered that there were simple things that adults essentially ran the world. And uh, to get along with them, you just please them in any way. You please them a proper way, you can manipulate them and have anything your heart desired. And it suited me just fine. Uh, Going to school over the years, I've discovered that one of the easiest things for me was to simply make A's, to bring home gold stars. And when you brought home gold stars, adults just, they were thrilled by this. They enjoyed it a lot. My father was in the oil business. He was a, a wildcatter. And, and our home was always filled with people to be entertained and uh, people that were were more or less famous in their own. I remember one of my earliest memories is a guy that would come by, a lanky guy, and play with me and get out and spend a lot of time with me in the yard and things. And uh, he was a lanky guy that wore khakis, and his name was Howard Hughes. H.L. Hunt lived just down the street. and uh, It was just an exciting time. My parents did some entertaining, and when they do entertaining, uh, they would have cocktails, and it, it always just seemed to be an idyllic world. Here were adults that laughed and joked and... Uh, I don't remember either of my parents uh, drinking excessively, uh, and that this just seemed to be a, a wonderful state of affairs. The, the gaiety and the, the laughter was just contagious, and something that I look forward to growing up someday and being able to do that. And I guess being an alcoholic at heart, I, I wanted to press the issue, so as soon as I could with my peers, uh, 
I'd go out and have a few beers, none of which I particularly enjoyed. I, I never liked beer, and I, I don't have that experience that a lot of alcoholics describe, having that first drink and it just lighting the world up for them, making the world right. Uh, an umbrella opens inside of excitement, uh, that they feel this inner warmth. Uh, I got my alcoholism the old-fashioned way, but I got I earned it drink by drink. Uh, I remember the first serious drink I had. I knew it was a serious drink uh, because it had an umbrella in it and cherry and all this fruit. And it must be serious, probably a vodka collins or something like that. But I went on through school, and um, I was popular in high school, and I got along with girls. Uh, gee, uh, just things were wonderful for me. And uh, I managed to make a good grades and make A's. And finally there came that moment when I graduated from high school and went off to college to be an adult. Oh, I was, I was full of myself and looking forward to that. And you know how parents are; they have plans for you. I remember they sent me to the University of Oklahoma to become a petroleum engineer. Well, we had three geologists in the family, and they needed a petroleum engineer. I went up there, and for the next four years, enjoyed myself and had a good time and made great grades. And when I graduated, I had uh, two degrees. You know, thought that might please them, but uh, one of the degrees was in psychology. And the other was in history, you know, none of which particularly fit the family needs. But I'd made uh, made all these great grades and received some prizes and things, and I loved college so much I decided to stay there. Hell, I spent 11 years in various universities, got five degrees out of the deal. I got a bachelor's in psychology and a master's in psychology and a Ph.D. in psychology and a master's in mathematics from Harvard, did a postdoctoral at Oxford University. I managed to waste a lot of time up there. <laughs> I enjoyed it thoroughly. And uh, as long as I kept getting gold stars and adults kept jumping through hoops and sending me prizes, which I interpreted as a nice check that I can endorse each month. And along the way, I managed to get married and have two children. I was totally irresponsible and self-centered. But I thought the only thing I had to do was make these grades and enjoy life and... Uh, that's what I did, by and large. But uh, after doing my postdoctoral in England and spending a couple of years there and winning some awards here and there, uh, you'll notice I, I'm going to sort of dance around my story because I'm well, I'm qualified. I've got brain damage. <laughs> I can do it. Um, I remember in 1963 I was asked to go and address the International Congress of Psychologists in Moscow. And being somewhat full of, full of myself, I. Uh, I remember um, the State Department came and said, uh, we would advise you not to. This was at the height of the Cold War. And, and uh, they wanted me to uh, present my paper that I received an outstanding research award that year in the United States for the year before. And it was, uh, I'm sure you're all familiar with it. It probably made all the papers and everything. Uh, you see, I'm an experimental psychologist. I'm in interested in animal behavior. I don't know a damn thing about human behavior, so don't ask me anything about it. As witness my own own personal record at that. But um, this was on the, oh, I'm sure you're familiar with it. It's the effect of um, ionizing radiation on bar pressing behavior in the white rat. See, I told you you knew about it. But the State Department tells me, no, you're not to do that. And uh, I managed to make my way to Helsinki, Finland, and from there into what at the time was called Leningrad at St. Petersburg again, and uh, made it into Moscow. There I was to share my expertise with these learned gentlemen from all over the world. There were about 4,000 psychologists there, and uh, got a motley crew. 
And um, the night before I was to give my paper the next day, they came to me and said, uh, for reasons of their own, that they couldn't have me deliver the paper in English. And I said, well, my Russian was a little rusty. I knew five words in Russian, and uh, four of those were for a different kind of vodka. <laughs> and, and I assured them that I could deliver it in either French or German, whichever they, they would prefer. Along the way, getting a, studying toward a Ph.D., at one time you, you showed expertise in Latin and ancient Greek because everything that was decent that had ever been published were published in those languages. But uh, in modern times, you could substitute a modern language. And uh, I was fairly fluent in, in French and German, but I had a reading knowledge, and I have a horrible ear for sounds. And it was difficult for me to pronounce these. But I opted to give it in German. I remember writing out this basic translation of my research and getting up and delivering this paper that day. And God, I was so proud of myself, giving it in another language like that. And I sat down to rather polite applause, I guess, and, and a lot of confused looks on faces. And I just mentioned this because years later in the doldrums of my alcoholism, I was in a little bar in New York City called Sullivan's on 8th Avenue. And... Uh, I was into my cups pretty well, and you know how it is, uh, that typical alcoholic behavior. I had met these two gentlemen that I was astounding with all of my knowledge, and uh, they were having a, they were speaking German, and I was speaking German, and uh, they were having difficulty understanding me. And I attributed this to their inability to consume large quantities of alcohol and uh, not being an expert like I was. And I, I'll never forget that. Uh, oh, it was probably 1 o'clock in the morning, and they got up and left sort of, confusedly and the bartender came over and said sir what were you speaking and I said well German of course and he said well they were speaking Polish <laughs> I remember that strikes me in my, my mind so much because up until that time I always considered myself a carefree individual I realized I didn't live like the normal individual out in the world but uh, but uh, I just considered myself eccentric that, that covered a multitude of sins simply Admitting to everybody that I was an eccentric. And uh, I remember walking out in front of that place and standing on the sidewalk for about 45 minutes. And I remember I started crying. And I, I'm from a, essentially a Germanic family where public displays of emotion are, are frowned upon. Uh, well, when we got married, it was uh, the minister usually said, uh, you may now shake hands with the, with the bride. And that was as, as much public display of emotion as we wanted. I remember being crushed with a, a depression at that time and uh, and um, just wondering where I would go from there. Typically, as an alcoholic, uh, I blanked out and wandered on and it didn't cause me that much concern any longer. Oh, uh, when I uh, finally finished that postdoctoral in, in England, a strange thing happened to me. Uh, there comes this time, particularly in Western civilization like this, and in America where you have to do something. I mean, people just expect it. Now, what are you going to do now that you've grown up? And and I just really didn't know. And I, I sort of weighed all of my advantages here that I had with these five degrees and all these gold stars and found that I was qualified to do one of two things. I could either sell used cars or I could teach. And um, I thought it carried a lot more prestige for an eccentric fellow like me to teach. And so I came back to the country and brought my family back. My son and I had a lot in common at that point. He was old enough that we were sharing report cards. And 
uh, checking them out and seeing counting gold stars. And I came back to find a job. And in academia, you fill out a vita. That's a fancy academic way of saying a resume. And you go to certain professional conventions and organizations and you start interviewing or lining up interviews for jobs. And I remember my first, my first interview, interestingly enough, was in Auburn, Alabama, University of Auburn. And, uh, they didn't have an airport there and I flew into Columbus, Georgia. And, uh, rented a car and drove into Auburn and showed up that morning and it turned out that they were going to do something new. They had a sort of a stress interview planned and, Got to the chairman's department uh, about quarter to eight. I was supposed to report there at eight. And uh, he said, good, you're here. And he took me down the hallway and put me in front of a class. And they had all the graduate students and all the faculty there and said, we want you to lecture on such and such a topic. And uh, I thought, well, this is a little unusual. But gosh, I, I was up for it. And I was up for that task. And I did it. And I gave him an hour of, I thought, my best. And uh they said, good, now we're going to this other class, and I did the same thing, and the next thing I knew it was, it was noon, and, uh, it's time for a greasy sandwich and pre-sweetened iced tea, and I abhor both of those. But I choked that down, and I, they had me wire some stuff, uh, in a lab, and they were just grading me. And so, finally five o'clock came, and I remember the chairman said, well, uh, Auburn's lovely this time of the year, the zellias are in bloom, would you like to go out and see the city, or, would you rather go to my house and have a drink? And instantly it hit me. Some choice, you know, and I, I opted to go have a drink. And so we get out there with all the faculty. I don't know. I wasn't counting their drinks, but apparently they were counting mine. And uh, after I'd had three or four and bolted them down pretty quickly, I was, uh, I'd loosened up and I was informing them of my uh, uh, theoretical posi- position on things like motivational theory and this and that and they, uh, they, one of them spoke up and said, you know, we're very proud of one thing here at this fine University of Auburn. He said, uh, you know, we find it very effective for both the staff and the students that we do not allow the sale of alcoholic beverages within two miles of the campus. Well, scratch Auburn. I got in my rental car and, drove, and took the first available flight out of Columbus. This was 1966, and I went to... Uh, I went then and found myself at the University of Washington in Seattle interviewing, and I went down to Berkeley and interviewed there. I had five interviews set up. Berkeley was happening. 66 Berkeley was there, man. It, it was something. Yeah. It was too radical for even an eccentric like me. And I interviewed at Southern Cal, and I almost, I almost agreed to sign a contract there. And at the other places, I was treated a little better, and... and um, I had one interview to do, and after all, I owed it to someone as magnificent as me. I owed it to them to go interview, and I'll never forget that. I I landed at an airport in this city, and I got off the plane, and I want to tell you something. I found civilization. I found nirvana. I found a city that had alcohol 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I landed in New Orleans and interviewed at Tulane University. I went out there and met him at 10 o'clock. Went to the faculty dining room where the wine was free. I signed a contract at one o'clock and moved my family to New Orleans. <laughs> I had found it. And I enjoyed teaching. I enjoyed it immensely. I loved it. I taught there for three years. My drinking had increased over time and it was imperceptible to me. 
research was my, my prime aim. In 1967, I received a letter, and it concerned uh, my doctoral research and some publications I had. By that time, I'd published 77 times, all in learned journals. Um, maybe you're familiar with some of <laughs> it. Uh, my doctoral research was on the perception of geomagnetism in the Belgian homing pigeon. See, I told you you'd be familiar with that. But I received a, a letter from from Stockholm, Sweden, requesting some reprints. And I had my name had been placed before the nominating committee for the Nobel Prize in Physiology. Being a good alcoholic, I sat down to write my acceptance and wonder how I should present myself to the king. But uh, I, in my mind, I'd want it. Uh, by the way, I'm still waiting on the committee to notify me at this time. <laughs> But uh, my research by that time had turned from uh, essentially one bar stool to the other. I was I was teaching. I was an assistant professor, and I was teaching nine hours a semester. My classes were on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and I was noted as a researcher. So presumably, I was to do research the rest of the time. Well, I just wasn't getting around to it, and I found the classes awkward, and uh, I didn't think I had anything to do with my drinking, but. By 1969, in December of 69, I went into the chairman of the department and said, I'd like to take a year's sabbatical to do my research. And he said, well, you haven't been here long enough to have a sabbatical with pay. And I said, oh, I don't mind about the pay. I just need a year off to do my research. And I took a year off, and my research was literally from barstool to barstool. And something that I love so dearly is teaching in the academic world. I'm here to say that I never went back. I was incapable of ever returning. All that preparation, and never went back. The easiest thing to fill out on my income tax reform is where it says earned income. Since 1969, I've just had to put a zero there. And uh, my father had died when I was fairly young, and uh, my mother passed away a few years later. And left me with uh, the wherewithal to be as eccentric as I wanted to be. I didn't feel good about it, but uh, and strange things kept happening to me as an alcoholic. I, my wife walked in one day, and she had a friend, and I'd invested in a in a business, and he was the manager. And they came in hand in hand and said something that sort of surprised me. They said, uh, "We're taking the children and leaving," and I had no idea why. I give you everything you want, everything but my time. That's an interesting story. Uh, I said, uh, the old psychologist came out in me, and I remember saying, well, let's be adults about this. Let's sit down and, and discuss this. Because I remember my mother and father would disagree from time to time, but I never saw them raise their voice. They never argued. They did. They would have disagreements, but they'd sit down and, and work it out in a in uh, such a beautiful way, and they'd have a meeting of the mind, and a decision was made. And I sat down, and I said, well, perhaps what we need to do here is try a trial separation. I will simply move out of the house, and I moved out the next day, and uh, within 16 hours, I was hit with desertion papers, <laughs> deserting my children. And I did what a good alcoholic would do. I notified an attorney, and I went to Hong Kong. Seemed logical to me. At the height of my drinking, I maintained uh, a residence in 
a place in New York City, and I had one in London, and I had one in Hong Kong, and a San Francisco, and a home in New Orleans, and uh, I hired in neighbors. I didn't know that's what they were, but that's what they were. I call them social secretaries, things like this, for a big important person like me, and uh, their job was principally to load me on and off airplanes and to let me know what day it was and what time it was, and, and for the next 20 years I drank that way around the world. And uh, things just happened. Uh, I remember waking up in London one time in a hotel. and But I thought we were in San Francisco. And I was with two ladies of my acquaintance. Uh, hungry, and I thought, well, it's time for breakfast. And I ordered down to room service. And they came up. And I'll never forget that. Uh, I finally woke them up, and I said, boy, this is a charming hotel. I said, the room service operator has a British accent. And the, the waiter has a British accent, but I said, well, we're not surprised. We've been in London for four days. <laughs> I was unaware. You know, just things like that happened. I remember once being on a flight back from Hong Kong on good old Pan American 2, and uh, I was intentionally pacing my drinking because I didn't want them to cut me off or anything, and I, I didn't want to upset the amateur drinkers around me. And, and I remember pacing it so much I'd get to the point where well it's time to ring for the flight attendant and have another drink as we were getting off in uh, San Francisco and stewardess came up and presented a bottle of Jack Daniels wrapped in gold foil and said sir you win the golden bottle award and I said what's that I don't understand she said well you've had uh, 24 Jack Daniels miniature bottles on this flight and said at 16, we were taking bets on when we'd have to cut you off. And we're just amazed. You're just as sober as a judge. And I said, well, thank you. I took that as a compliment. And you know where I was going? I was going to try to get through customs as quickly as possible because I needed to drink. And uh, that's the way I lived. Just a, a beautiful thing, I'm sure of it. I thought I was a member of the jet set and was envied by people far and wide. I had no idea. Well, I remember um, I remember instructing that attorney when I'd gone to Hong Kong that time. I said, pay anything you want in, uh, in alimony. I'm a practical per- person, and I've made some remarkable investments over my life, but I knew that that was deductible from the IRS. But I said, uh, the child support, let me take care of the children myself. I'll handle that. I remember when I got back, he was so pleased, you're... Your alimony is zero, and your child supports two thousand dollars a month, which a thousand for each child. Have a boy and a girl, and uh, that was quite a bit of money in uh, 1971 when that occurred. I remember writing those checks out all those years, and when my daughter finally reached 18, I was writing the last check, and my my wife said, uh, "You know, you've been such a brick about this all. Why don't you just forget that check?" And I, I, I thought to myself, "Ha ha! Trying to trick me. She'll be able to say then, you know, that lousy, no good, never paid his child support." And I, I gave her the check and insisted, and she left. And my daughter looked up at me and said, "Dad, don't you realize you've lived? With, we've lived with you all these, <laughs> these years." And I'd raise the children. <laughs> it never dawned on me to go back to court. <laughs> story of my life, you know, I just, well, my drinking had just gradually increased over time, and uh, I, I literally had the wherewithal to kill myself, and that's what it amounted to, and I, 
I set out to do it. And I must admit, during some of those times, it was a glorious, it was a glorious life. I, I met so many interesting people and uh, got to go to so many interesting places. I used to boast in, in bar rooms that uh, I'd never been to the Antarctic. Someone would say, why? And I'd say, hell, they don't have a liquor license there, you know. And I was serious because I once attempted to go. I went and uh, contracted with a supply vessel out of Chile to go to McMurdo Sound. I'd always wanted to see an emperor penguin up close. That, that was important for me to do. And I remember getting on the ship, and uh, I had uh, two cases of Jack Daniels, and I thought that might just get me there and back while they delivered supplies. And the captain informed me that this was a U.S. registered vehicle under contract with the United States Navy and that uh, liquor was not allowed. And I said, well, I can't go. And he said, there'll be no refunds. And I said, thank God, I just went out of here. And that was the way I was living. And uh, <clears throat> I drank like that and drank alcoholically for at least 20 years. And uh, toward the end of my drinking, toward the end of my drinking, uh, I found it impossible to travel anymore. I gave up my apartments and other places and I became more and more homebound. And uh, uh, exciting things were happening and I was had lost the ability to control them. Uh, next thing I knew, the Internal Revenue was investigating me and not, uh, not auditing, a criminal, criminal investigation. And, at, and it was just because I, they didn't understand eccentric. You know, like, they have a place there on that form you have to fill out each year, and it says occupation. I never knew what to put. Uh, one year I put regular in 155 neighborhood bars. I thought that pretty well described it. <laughs> and they called me in, and they have no sense of humor. I'm here to tell you that. Uh, one year I put wastrel down. I thought I'd be Shakespearean for him. I remember that time uh, they said, look, just put what you are down there. I think probably they meant self-employed, I don't know. but So the next year I wrote Rich Kid, and boy, that's when it hit the fan. <laughs> it hit the fan. And, you know, to this day I'm red-flagged with those folks. I tell you, they have no sense of humor. I know they got a job to do and everything, and in case any of you work for them... <laughs> Don't check the spelling of my last name or social security number. <laughs> it's probably posted in your main office anyway. <laughs> but uh, that was the story of my life. And toward the end of my drinking, the last two years, uh, my kids had gone off and become successful. And uh, my enablers had left me. I was so disgusting to them that they couldn't put up, no matter what you would be willing to pay them. I was left living in this... Big old empty house in New Orleans with a, a maid from Brazil. Thank God she, she looked after me and, uh, she's been with me, uh, 22 years now. And that's the only stability I had in my life. And the last year of my drinking, I lost all appetite for food. I subsisted entirely on empty calories. And you can do that, but it plays havoc with your system. When I graduated from high school, I weighed 185 pounds, and I weighed that most of my life. And um, that last year, I drank and I drank. And I would have food prepared for me, or I'd go out and order an elaborate meal, and God in New Orleans knows how to put a meal on. But it was unappetizing. I, I, I knew I had to eat, and I, I would put it in my mouth, and I'd just 
order another bottle of wine. It finally came down to a morning, a December morning. And I woke up and I knew I was in serious trouble. Those last about six months, they're so hazy. I, I think I would, I, I would sleep no more than two or three hours at a time. And I'd wake up and I'd have to drink and then I'd sort of blend out and then I, and I never knew whether it was AM or PM. And I'd look outside and, and times that really confused me were like eight o'clock. And I saw on this clock it was eight o'clock, but I, I didn't know whether it was morning or evening. And, um, I tried to get out of bed and something was wrong. My legs wouldn't move. I was paralyzed from the waist down. And, uh, it dawned on me that, well, it's finally time. I was aware that I'd lost a little weight. I'd look in the mirror and say, but I, I had this delusional thinking that, well, if I eat Saturday, it'll all come back. And I'll be all right. And then I, I found that, uh, for about the last six months, was, I'd be walking along and suddenly I'd bump the wall real hard. And I'd try to back away from it. And then I realized I was face down. I would, uh, that the feeling was going away from my legs, that uh, something was wrong. And I'd developed a severe case of peripheral neuropathy is what's happening, but, and I tried to live that way, and I had no solution, I had no answer. I needed a drink. I listened to Frank when he talked about drinking a drink with cigarette butts in it, and I boy, that's down, Frank, that's at bottom, <laughs> because because I looked on the nightstand, and from the night before, there was a drink there. About half full. I've always been an optimist. Jack Daniels. I picked that glass up, a big rock glass, and I fastidiously removed the cigarette butt. <laughs> and I drank it down. That was December the 5th, 1987. And hopefully that'll be the last drink of alcohol I'll ever have to take. I heard a noise in the kitchen, and I realized it was a maid coming in. And I laid there in bed, laid there in bed, and finally she came in. And when she came in, she said, oh, you're still in bed. Feigning surprise, I guess. And I said, yes, I've decided to stay in bed all day. I didn't want to tell her that I was in trouble in any way. She said, can I get you anything? And I said, yes, I'd like two bottles of Jack Daniels, please. Just set them on the nightstand here. I knew my body was shutting down. I saw no solution, and the only answer to me was simply a nice, quiet death. And I figured maybe one bottle would do it. And she left. And I waited and waited for her to come back. And finally she came back in about 30 minutes later, and she put two bottles of Jack Daniels down. By that time, I was worried about having the strength of opening one. I thought, well, when she leaves, I can crack the top of one. And maybe I've got six hours before I die. But that was the only viable solution I had. And then I heard another noise. And all of a sudden, in come my two children that I haven't seen in about two months. And my son looks at me and he says, Get out of bed, we're taking you to the hospital. And I said, Why? What for? And he said those words. He said, We think you have a problem with alcohol. I was furious. Furious. <laughs> I had any problem. I had two bottles right there. 
And he said, no, look, get out of bed. And I started crying. My family, you don't show emotion. That's the first time I'm ever and last time I'm aware of crying in front of my children like that. And I said, I can't get out of bed. And I was ashamed. I'd wet the bed, and I didn't want my children to see that. And he walked around, and he threw back the covers. And he said, you're going to the hospital. And I'll never forget, I said, it's Friday. Why don't we wait till Monday? I promise I will go Monday. Because I wasn't going to be there Monday. One of those bottles would all it'd take. And he reached down and he picked me up effortlessly. And I was just amazed at his strength. Told my daughter, he said, pack a bag. He took me out and threw me in the back of a car. And then it sort of jumbled and jumbled. And then I, I'm aware of being in a sling. Like a big baby sling. And they're weighing me. You know, first things first at the hospital. After they check your credit and your ability to pay, then they got to weigh you and take your blood pressure. I hate to be that cynical about it, but that's what it was appearing to me. And I remember the nurse said, 105 pounds. And I said, that's impossible. I weigh 185 pounds. Maybe I've lost a five or six pounds. 105 pounds, she said. And then it sort of waves in and out, in and out. And my doctor, who was a neighbor, came in and she said, uh, Charles, we think you can profit from some alcoholic rehabilitation. And I remember saying to her, just prescribe some antibiotics and I'll stop drinking. Because I was, instantly as I was coming to there, I was aware of those two bottles of Jack Daniels. And I had to get to them. And she said, no, no, uh, we, I talked it over with your children and uh, we think that, and she kept on and on. And she I finally said, look, why don't you at least let me have a night's sleep in here and we'll talk about it in the morning. She said, oh really, how long have you been here? And I said, about six hours. She says, you've been here ten days. I took a little wind out of my argument. I'd been eating IV style in there, and so I thought, well, this, boy, this bitch is hard. I, I'll escape from the other place, because those two bottles of Jack Daniels, you know, and I said, uh, okay. So um, I left there and headed off for this thing called a treatment center. Had a nice ambulance ride about six blocks away, and I went in in style, I have you know, I went in on a stretcher, and I was placed in detox. That's what they call it, detox. And I was there one day, two days, three days, four, five, one week, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, I'm still in detox. My vital signs are all over the place, and I learned later that they were, they were trying to get me back in the other hospital. They refused. Doesn't make sense to me. No amount of money was going to get me in any of these places. And uh, finally they came that time, and I was making some progress, by golly. I was off that stretcher. I was in a wheelchair. I was mobile, and I was contemplating escape. Because all I could think of was a drink of whiskey, and that's what I needed and what I wanted. I knew it wouldn't be good. But after all, it's been it's been uh, almost 40 days now, and maybe, it'll, maybe I can get through the se- half the second bottle before it kills me. They put me in this wheelchair and they roll me down this long corridor and I meet a counselor. I want to tell you something. Talking about <clears throat> contempt prior to investigation, psychologists make very unlovely patients and clients, I understand. And here's this counselor with an associate's degree from some A&M college that's going to tell this Oxford <laughs> man. I later found out that he'd drawn the short straw. <laughs> and he got down and he asked me this question. He was a linebacker for an NFL team. Big black man. I thought, boy, I hope he's got a sense of humor. 
He says, uh, how would you describe your drinking? And I said, well, I, I consider myself a heavy social drinker. He said, well, how much do you drink ordinarily in a day? I looked at him and I said, I don't think he's got a sense of humor at all. And it, I tried to, I tried to think, what can I tell him? I, over, over my drinking career, I'd done most of my drinking outside, you know, in bar rooms and lounges. I loved the camaraderie and the, the excitement of the places and things. And, but at home, I'd have to have a certain amount just to maintain. And if I had some banking business or some, had to go to the IRS or had to go to a broker or something, I could get by in a day just on a court. And I could maintain on a court and appear to be what I considered normal. And I got to thinking about this because this guy's got no sense of humor at all. If I tell him a court, he, he might think I'm an alcoholic. So I said, only about two pints a day. Sounded like less to me than <laughs> a whole court. Only about two pints. Sure enough, he had no sense of humor. He allowed that I had a problem with alcohol. Well, those, those treatment centers are lovely places, you know. A lot of them do a lot of good for a lot of people. Uh, sometimes I think that we perhaps abrogated our basic 12-step work to them. That's neither here nor there. They were trying to take care of me, and I was a very sick individual. They rolled me into this thing that they call group. And uh, it wasn't even Rogerian. They were too directive for me. That's a little inside for non-directive therapy, and they were telling people what was wrong with them, and I thought, oh, this is that. But they didn't say much to me. In fact, they'd roll me into the corner, and they'd ignore me. And they were doing these things, and it was called first step, second step. And it finally dawned on me that these window shades on, that they had hanging on the wall had something to do with those steps. And I looked up there, and I read that. They said 12 steps, and I started reading them. And I knew I'd made a mistake. You see, my, my parents were extremely religious people, very, very religious. Their religion was atheism. And you, if you don't think that's a religion, it takes as much faith to believe there is no God as to believe that there is a God. And they were adamant. My father had his Ph.D. in geology from Stanford, and my mother had her master's in geology, which was very unusual at that time. And uh, I looked at those steps, and every other word was God, some sort of cultish sort of simplistic thinking going on here. And, it's all right for you, but it just cut me out. Cut me out of the picture altogether. And um, each week in there, in that treatment center, I'd get the same treatment. They'd roll me up to this person in charge, and they'd say, uh, well, we think you've been making remarkable progress. And uh, we think, however, you can profit from another week's stay. And by the way, you owe $11,500, and I'd buy him a check. And this went on week in, week out. I was in the treatment phase for 57 days when when a substance abuse technician came up and said, Charles, you want to stay here the rest of your life? And I said, no, of course not. You know, I got two bottles of Jack Daniels at home waiting on me. And he says, you keep writing those checks, you'll be here the rest of your life. <laughs> and sure enough, the next week I, I was rolled up there and they said, uh, you know, Charles, we think you can profit from another week's stay here. You're making remarkable progress. And by the way, you owe $11,000. I said, I'd love to write you a check, but I don't have any money. I just told him that. And the next day, I graduated with high honors. <laughs> I got another gold star. 
Now, I wasn't a complete loss during all this time. They did two things for me. One of the things that they did, I graduated from that wheelchair to a walker, and it was a physical rehab center in connection with that hospital. And they'd taken me down and they showed me other cues to use to maintain balance when your feelings gone in your legs. I still have only about 20% feeling in my legs. They taught me to walk extra slew-footed so I could maintain my balance. They gave me a lot of useful things. And they had me exercising. And boy, I was belting down in Sure Plus and eating four meals a day. And I skyrocketed up to 130 pounds. Boy, I was a fine specimen. They did a lot of wonderful things for me. But the most wonderful thing they did was introduce me to a strange group of people. And those people were called alcoholics. And they loaded me in vans and took me to these meetings. And I'd go to these various meetings in different places. And I just, I'd marvel at, at how happy you and how content you were with so little. And you would share and go around and I'd sort of sit in the corner and watch it. And I, I thought this was the most marvelous thing I'd ever seen for you. It wasn't for me. They also insisted that I get a sponsor. Well, some of you people would come in and talk to us in that treatment center and take an evening of your, your night out and come in. And I just thought that was wonderful. And finally, one of them came in. And he was a city planner. And he had his master's from Harvard. And I thought he might be minimally adequate for me. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's the way I was. And so I asked Scott to sponsor me. And he agreed to when I got this word that I was graduating the next day, I called Scott and said, I'm out of here. I'm, I think I've graduated and I'm all right now. And I sure appreciate it. And the next morning I graduated and there was Sky. And uh, he uttered those famous words, get in the car. <laughs> I got in the car and he took me home. First thing I noticed, there wasn't any liquor in that house at all. And I don't know where those two bottles had gone to. You know? But Sky sort of kept me busy and, God, I was fatigued and tired anyway. And so I... We went to a meeting that night, and then I went home and went to bed. I'd see about that drink the next day, and at 7 o'clock, the doorbell rang, and there was Sky. And that's what it was like. I thought the first step was get in the car and listen for a long time. Now, I'd been in that treatment center long enough that the next thing I knew, I picked up one of these things that they call a 90-day chip. And I enjoyed the attention you folks gave me, and people patted me on the back, and they smiled, and I thought I'd done something. And it sort of went like that, but I wasn't being honest. I am a quick study and a quick read, and I read, I read, uh, Pass It On, Dr. Bob and the Good Old Timers, and uh, I read, uh, A Comes of Age, and I memorized certain things, and when they let me share, I just astound them. I knew, I knew that I must be important because y'all kept saying, well, just keep coming back. <laughs> I spoke AA about as well as I spoke French and German. <laughs> And time passed. And it was just pure willpower because every nerve in my body screamed for a drink of alcohol. And I kept thinking, well, I've got this much time. I'll just wait another little day, another little day. And the next thing I know, I had five months of total abstinence. Five months. Without a, that was the first time that I remember since probably the ninth grade that I'd gone that long without a drink. I didn't think that I would ever maintain any length of sobriety. I thought it was just a matter of time. But I had five months, and Sky was so pleased with me that I didn't want to let him down. But I knew that relapse was inevitable. It eventually was going to happen. 
I'd even faked working the steps for Sky's sake. I'd done what I called a fourth step at the time, a fifth step. I was ripping them off like merit badges. They meant the same damn thing to me. I even did something that would have disappointed my parents. I'd said, uh, gone along with them and said the serenity prayer. And I would say the Lord's Prayer at the end of the meeting, but they were just words to me. It didn't matter. When I reached that five-month thing, they didn't give a chip out for that, so I rewarded myself. I went out and never owned one, and they were sort of pretentious, but I bought a big, huge Fleetwood Cadillac, white Cadillac that day. That goes for my chip. <laughs> and that night I went to a meeting. It was a 449 meeting. Guess what that's on? Acceptance, you know I go in there and they've got a moderator and a leader and he's talking about the higher power as a concept. And then they go around there sharing on this and I don't know whether you people hear that in the same ears that an atheist would hear it, but I'd hear things say, first David would say, my higher power whom I choose to call God. Like if you don't, you're some kind of ninny. Some absolute idiot. And then Mary would share, my higher power whom I choose to call Jesus. You know, and this is going around and it came to me and I just wasn't going to share by God if they were going to talk like that. And I passed. Just said my name. And I was getting, I was getting angry at this. I, I wasn't a part of. I just wasn't a part of. And play acting can only take you so far. And the real part of the meetings that I liked was the meeting after the meeting anyway. Go to Shoney's or some place like that and have a little pie and coffee. Tell a few lies and sit around and feel like a part of, you know. And I could do that. I could handle that. I've done that all my life. And what seemed like an interminable length of time, they finally closed that meeting, and I'll never forget that. It was on the west bank of the Mississippi River in a part of town called Algiers. It's a section I live in. You can look directly across and you see the Vieux Carré. That's local talk for the French Quarter. You've got the St. Louis Cathedral and the Cabeldo and all that over there in Jackson Square. So I get in the car and I'm thinking, well, they said, come on, go to Shoney's with us, Charles. And I said, no, I'm a little tired. I think I'll go home tonight. I was ever thinking that that special little booklet has a Halt. I was hungry and angry and lonely and tired. I've been gorging myself on Insure Plus, and that can only go so far. And I hadn't eaten that day. I hadn't slept well the night before. I think I was born tired, and at least this, this neurological condition had made me tired, and I was certainly angry. I'm talking about their higher power. You see, I had, in order to satisfy my sponsor, I'd agreed I needed a higher power. You know, if I didn't get a higher power, you people weren't going to leave me alone. So I made the group my higher power. And here's a group here mocking me by talking about their God. And see, your God was so special because your God was powerful and it was magic. And my God was you. My higher power was you, you know. And uh, I just felt somehow robbed because you had something mystical and I didn't. You had something mythical and I didn't. I had you. Oh, I could agree with your argument. You can stand around this table and pick it up effortlessly where I couldn't budget by myself. I realized I needed you. I told him I was going home. I got in that car and I, I said, you know, I owe myself a treat. I owe myself a treat. I'll just go over to the French Quarter and go to one of my 
fine restaurants and I'll just kick back and it's 20, late night town anyway. It was about a little before 9, about 9 o'clock at this time. And I thought I'll go over there and I'll have a nice little meal and I'll go home and go to sleep and worry about it tomorrow. I got in that car and you have to drive around and approach this greater Mississippi River Bridge. I love this talk at Chamber of Commerce, which is typical. This is a, the highest, longest, double cantilever bridge, whatever that may, means in the world. And I'm starting across that thing. I'm going up this ramp and you, you go up and it, it has to be so high because the aircraft carriers have to be able to go under it and everything. And I get about halfway up that ramp. And all of a sudden, I hear just clear as a bell, a number. I'm going on this commanding voice says, 49. And I look at the radio, and it's not on. And I said, the bridge police on their loudspeakers. I look in the rearview mirror, and there's nothing there. And I break out in a cold sweat. It was an auditory hallucination. Why couldn't it be something clever? What's the significance of 49. I drive about a hundred yards further and I hear it once again but this time not quite as loud. It says 49. And I'm having hot flashes, anxiety attack, my heart's racing. I'm driving on a cross and it's practically no traffic. But I continue to drive. I've got a destination. I turn off on the first exit off the bridge and it's Camp Street. Somehow that's symbolic because Camp Street's the street of all the winos. I'm driving down and suddenly the fear is gone and I feel excited. I feel pumped. And the colors, neon, has become electric blue. And I, I'm sort of enjoying this now. I'm excited. And I'm thinking to myself, if I go to a restaurant this time of night, the guy will say, look at the loser. He's by himself. I'll have to tip in the maitre d' and exhort him in the mount or sit by the kitchen and wait. And I look ahead and there's a Sheridan Hotel there. And I hit upon the solution. I'm sort of tired anyway. I'll just check in and get a room in the Sheridan. And uh, I'll have room service, have something to eat, watch a little TV, doze. Go home in the morning and everything will be all right. You see, I'd stayed in a lot of the hotels there because people talk about DWIs and everything. One thing, I, I had some attorneys and I said, Charles, if you're going to drink like that, you don't drive. Never drive. Never. They'll own you if you ever have an accident. And uh, so I never drove drunk. Uh, I had people that drive me and things. And, but if I happened to be across the river and by, by myself, I'd leave the car there and I'd check into one of the hotels. So they all sort of knew me. And so I'd just check in and I'd spend the night. And the next day, I, I could always find my car because I always parked in a commercial garage. And I could reach in my pocket and I could pull out my receipt and I could say, Ah, I know where it is. I could go get my car. Perfect plan in case any of you ever planned relapse. Uh, <laughs> Lord forbid. I, I remember one time walking in the bar on Royal Street in New Orleans called Sloppy Gems, and I pulled my receipt out and I said, I'm having trouble finding my car. And I knew the bartender says, John, can you tell me where my car is? And I remember him looking at it and saying, San Francisco. <laughs> Turned out to be a rental car I'd left out there one time, and it, it was still clocking up space on my credit cards both ways. Everybody was happy but me. Um, so um, I'm thinking, yeah, that's the solution. So I, I pull up my hit Canal Street, a huge, broad street, and it just, it's, act now, New Orleans is always going, but it seemed more exciting than usual. And people were walking up and down, it was just, 
and I had to hook a right and go half a block and drive into the drive-through area of this hotel. And I get there, and there's just lots of cars, and I have to so I'm getting impatient. I finally get there, and the valet man comes out and gives me a ticket, and he says, "Check me in." I say, "Yes," and I give him a twenty-dollar bill. And I walk up to that side door, and I walk up to those electric doors, and they go, doo, doo, you know, and I walk in, and it's just exciting. To the right is this huge atrium and this bar that wraps completely around. And the gaiety and the laughter is there. And I swear I could hear the ice cubes rattling those glasses. sound like fine barbarian crystal ring. Ding, ding, ding. And to the left were these huge leather chairs with Persian rugs spread out and the lobby's full and the registration and everything's sort of brass and glittery. And up on a mezzanine level is this big pod and it's got one of these Yamaha grand pianos playing one that plays the, the CDs and it was Gershwin himself and I swear it was playing Rhapsody in Blue and at that instant at that instant I remembered what 49 was $49 was the cost of a bottle of Jack Daniels room service at Sheraton International at that time I realized I'm relapsing I remember asking my sky, I'd say, sky, what happens when you, when you come to that moment of relapse? Because I knew it was around the corner anyway. And he said, well, there'll come a time when you'll have no natural defense against that first drink. You'll have to redouble your spiritual efforts. And I said, sky, what's that mean, redouble your spirit? He says, you'll have to pray and pray hard. You'll have to rely on your higher power. At that instant, I swear, I thought, my higher power is having coffee and pie at Shoney's across the river. <laughs> but something had gotten through to me, and I had paid attention and I had done the reading. I said, all right, I'll borrow their mythical God. I'll borrow that all-powerful God. And I said a prayer. And I said it out loud at the top of my voice. I didn't realize it, but people turned around and looked at me. I said, all right, God, if you exist, you'll stop me. That's the sort of impudent prayer that I said. I want to tell you something, though. For an instant there, I knew real fear, because I'm, I'd heard about your Sunday school, God. And someone as important as me, I knew that the ground had to open up and swallow me, or, or a bolt of solid gold lightning would strike me right in the forehead and kill me on the spot. And I cringed there for what seemed like an interminable time. It was probably four seconds. And nothing happened. And I said, you see? And I walked across that lobby floor to register with real purpose. I was relapsing. I got up there and strange thing, it was, they had the ropes like a bank or any line and there were people ahead of me and I was impatient. It's 9.15 by now and I'm looking, I'm looking, going and going. They got three people registering people. And finally, one of them looked up and said, next, and it was my turn and I was ready. I walked up there and threw down not a green, not a gold, but a platinum American Express, and I laid on top of that a Sheridan gold preferred card. I said, I want a room on the 42nd floor. And the reason I chose the 42nd floor is because that's a floor of all suites, and they have a private bar to keep you riffraff out there, <laughs> out of there, and it's open all the time, and you can go in and drink gratis. I don't know what the drinks would really figure out when you figured the cost of a room on the 42nd floor, but that's the way it was. And she looked up and said, do you have reservations for the puzzle? And I said, no, of course not, but those are my credentials. And there was a long pregnant pause and she said, I don't know who you think you are, but there's no room at the end.
said, what do you say? She says, there's no room at the inn. And a feeling came over me, a feeling of warmth, and I didn't have labels for what I felt. I'd never felt that way. And I heard myself saying, you know what? And she said, what? I said, there's a higher power, and his name is God. And without hesitation, she reached down and picked up a house phone and she said, Give me security. I got a live one at the front desk. I gathered those credit cards up and I hit a hasty retreat. And as I was leaving, a gentleman standing behind me said, Are you a friend of Bill Wilson with a quizzical look on his face? And I said, Of course I am. And he said, You better hang in there. He saw something. I made it out there just as you're getting ready to, to park that car. And I gave him another 20. And I'm here to tell you that's the last alcoholic behavior on my part. I've learned to be as stingy as the rest of you bastards. <laughs> I got in that car and I headed back across that river. And I got there and I settled in when they were working on their second cup or third cup of coffee. And I sat down like nothing happened. And I kept quiet about that for three days. I walked on air. I felt, I felt a grace that I'd never felt before. I felt a love that I'd never felt before. I felt an inner war warmth that I was looking for all of my life. And finally it came that time and I told Sky what had happened. And Sky said, I wouldn't tell anybody about that just now if I were you. He said, we've got work to do. First thing we did was take that Cadillac and donate it for a raffle. He took my credit cards and he not only cut them all up, but he wrote each of the per people, sat down personally and wrote them a long letter explaining questioning their sanity at even granting me credit in the first place. I tell you, a few of those can really muck you up for a while, too. <laughs> we went out and picked out an old rusty Chevrolet for me, and he says, ego deflation at depth is the only thing that might save your life. And we started working on it. Three weeks later, I found myself in front of one of the meanest projects in town. I said, what are we doing here? And he says, we're making a 12-step call. I want to tell you, I, I really learned something about prayer there. Went in and made a 12-step call. Sky was one of the few that would go into that place. And he taught me how. And I embarked on a way of life and a design for living that I'm so grateful for. I became teachable. Sky died when I had nine months of sobriety. We lost a heck of a gentleman, and and uh, interesting, I had a sponsor before 24 hours were up because I was acting on Sky's advice. He says, you'll never make it alone. He says, you tried that. He said, if anything happens to me, you have to get a new sponsor within 24 hours. He died two days later. He had some kind of inkling. Sky was interested in H&I work, corrections and treatment for me. And he got me into that. My first job was carrying the message into a state prison. And um, there wasn't enough that I could do. I'm reminded of that. We spoke today of uh, AA Comes of Age. And I think of Bill Wilson on that podium in St. Louis. And behind him was this new symbol, a circle and a triangle. And he said, we the co-founders are ready to give to you. You have come of age. You're adult now. And we leave to you the three marvelous legacies. The legacy of recovery with its 12 steps. The legacy of unity with its 12 traditions. 
and the legacy of service with his 12 concepts of worldwide service. And uh, although it's not an official trademark, it's on our hearts, that circle and triangle. So symbolic of those three wonderful legacies handed to us that we are now responsible for. Anything that I was asked to do, I did from that point on. I was so public in it that all, although I have just a little over 10 years of sobriety, people think I've been around for 30 years or so. You know, it's just one of those things. Anything I could do, I had the time and I had the resources to devote it. And I said, I'll give AA five years of my life. That was a little over 10 years ago, and that's all I do now. I just, I'm so blessed that I have the, am able to do that. And it changed my life entirely. Things have just happened since then. Thing, you know, they, they mentioned San Diego, the International, yesterday. And I remember being out there. And Frank mentioned synchronicity. That's the, for you newcomers, that's what we call the coincidences or, or the God things. I've seen two atheists sit there and, and something will happen. They'll say, must be a God thing. And one says, undoubtedly. <laughs> we know what that means. Is these chance happenings that have to be related in some way, but that relationship is not apparent. It's only spiritually felt. And in uh, San Diego, just marvelous things started happening. Uh, I was asked to participate in a workshop out there. Now, this will show you what what living the A-world uh, lifestyle is about. Uh, I spoke on humility. <laughs> I kept saying, and there's some mistakes. That we hope not. <laughs> And um, I remember when it was over, you know, it's just a Friday night, a Saturday, and Sunday. It's like any of our roundups or jamborees or conventions or technically a conference can only be used with the conference in New York and the Southeast Conference because it predates the conference. As a result, with all the autonomy and well-meaning in the world, we have conferences all across the United States now, but that was an advisory action in 1972. But um, things just happened out there. It was just beautiful. I remember in that hotel we were staying in, it was a, a double-rise holiday inn around the corner. And I, I, it was a little bit out of the way, but it was fortunate because a lot of the, a lot of the foreign delegations were staying there. And they were, the Belgians were there and the Belgiques. It was so interesting because they, they came on two 747s. I said, why two? And they said, one smoking, one non-smoking. <laughs> Same problems they were placed. A lot of the Japanese were there, uh, and they didn't understand the smoking regulations at all. And California is pretty strict about that sort of thing. Uh, you have to wear a sign condemning yourself or something, and then stand downwind in order to smoke. So the hotel, to lessen the problems, had opened a, a banquet room about, little, about twice this size off the lobby, and they'd scouted out some old peas and carrot cans and things, put a little sand in them and had some ashtrays in the room for, for everybody. And some chairs and we sort of formed circles and people just started meeting in there. Uh, prior to going and waiting on the bus to go to the stadium or something, everybody just meet in there and visit. And uh, Sunday afternoon it was over and uh, to empty a city like that, the planes, a lot of people were leaving the, that Monday and some of the charters were leaving the next day and people were staying around. It was just like, it's over, it's over, it's, it's too soon. And someone suggested we have a meeting, and we, we formed a big circular meeting in there, and and um, everybody sat in a chair, and 
someone started cheering and we started around counterclockwise. Typical AA, no one goes clockwise. We started around counterclockwise. And it got to the first person. I remember she was from Belgium. And she started trying to share a little bit in English. And uh, it was difficult for her. And, she went, and someone said, no, no, each share in their own language. And that's the way it went. And uh, it was a delight to hear her share. And uh, it got to the Japanese. There was a Dutch and there were... There was um, Afrikaans, and there were German, and all these languages. And, and when I got to Japanese, every now and then I'd hear the word sounded like sobriety. Sobriety. It was difficult for them to say, but they, they would share and share. And when, when you hear someone else share in a language you have not, you can, you can sense some sort of a pain, and you can sense the solution, and you can sense the joy and the, the smile. And... Each person taking two or three minutes, and there were about 200 in this room in this big circle. And after it was over, I went up to the Japanese interpreter they had, and I said, Sir, I, did I hear the word sobriety? He, he got all excited. He said, oh, yes, 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 our group, sobriety, we decide. And I said, why? And he said, we don't have a word that means like that in Japanese. And so I asked the obvious, what does it mean? And he said, sober with peace sober with peace beautiful definition of sobriety just wonderful I uh, I managed to serve at several service positions and in uh, 1995 I had the privilege of representing Area 27 Louisiana at the conference in New York as the delegate and while I was up there I stayed over one day to visit with a trustee and uh, I uh went around to the 46th Street Clubhouse and uh, there was a meeting that afternoon and I thought, well, I'll walk over there. I went over to 8th Avenue and I started down 8th Avenue and I had this strange feeling of deja vu and everything and I was heading down toward the old uh, an old hotel there and uh, I finally get around the corner there and walk up about two buildings and there's a circle and triangle there. And it says push button. So I push the button and the door buzzed and I open it and I still had this strange feeling. And I looked just catty corner across the street and there was a bar there and that bar was called Sullivan's. And that's a bar I'd stood in front of for about 45 minutes with tears running down my face and no solution. And the solution was across the street. But it took what it took to get there. God, what a great clubhouse. Nicotine caked on the wall about that thing. There was a picture on the back, and the nicotine was on it so much. And there was someone mopping the mopping the, the floor, and the, some guy says, "You know who that is?" And I says, "No, I don't." He says, "That's Bill Wilson mopping the floor." And an old timer in the back says, "Mopping hell." He was posing. And I'll leave you with that. Thank you. <laughs>